Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Randy Hetrick is a former Navy SEAL, 14-year veteran of the military, and the creator of the TRX System Fitness brand. Randy joins me today to discuss how his diverse life experiences and military discipline helped him build his successful business. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, your host, and this is Motivational Mondays. I am super excited today to be joined by Randy Hetrick, 14 years in the military, a former special operations field commander and the founder of the very successful TRX fitness brand. Now, Randy, as a Navy SEAL, you have been deployed all over the world. You hold a master's degree in national security affairs, an MBA from Stanford, and you had a massive community of gyms, personal trainers, and celebrities all using your TRX workout system. And let me just first say, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Well, thank you, Corey. It's nice to be with you guys. And uh, all I can surmise from from your preamble there is that I must be getting old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, whatever you want to call it, it's really impressive. I have never felt like, well, let me just say first, I felt like I had accomplished a lot in life thus far until I read your resume. And I was like, I'm clearly slacking because... Um, you, you know, it's all in front of you. You know, not all of it, but but a lot more is in front of you, right? And that's kind of how it goes. I mean, I can tell by your youthful glow that uh, you got plenty of years to go build big stuff still. Oh, well, I'm trying. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate coming from you. That is a vote of confidence that I will accept and I will um, hold dear to my heart. So thank you, sir. I do want to ask you, though, with that said, that is a lot of accomplishment and it's all very high level performing stuff. There's not like anything there was sort of mediocre. I mean, that's all high level performing stuff. So I am curious to know, were you always driven for success, even as a child or young person with aspirations? And were you also interested in the military when you were younger? I guess I would say I was driven to success, but early on, it was really because I wasn't very successful as an athlete when I was very young. And I think, you know, some of that, it's funny how life works, right? Some of that left a a little bit of a, I don't know what to call it, a chip on my shoulder, maybe, that I was capable of better than I had displayed. And I really believed that, but I was, you know, I I was a young kid from my grade and a late bloomer, both to boot. So it took me a few years to come into my own. And I think during that time frame, I got a little bit of a chip that both to myself, maybe to my old man, you, you know, I wanted to prove that I was better than what I had done so far. And I think it just compounded, right? It's, that's one of those things about uh, when you set off to prove something to yourself, you got to be a little bit careful because you might get addicted to it. And that's kind of what happened for me. I just kind of kept wanting to do something hard to show what I was made of. You know, I think anybody is capable of doing doing great stuff if you're willing to work. In some ways, you exploring your own path was the better path for you ultimately anyway? For sure. I mean, my parents were mortified when I popped up my junior year in college and started talking about the military, right? I mean, they were like, what in the heck? 
And I did have a pretty good history of military service in my family tree. And my stepdad had been a Marine Corps platoon commander in Vietnam. And I always found that to be fascinating, right? I mean, it, it was, it just intrigued me as I was growing up and the, you know, the war was, I don't know, seven, eight years behind us right at that point. But I just got interested in it. But yeah, ultimately, I think everybody's got to pick your own path and you've got to, you're going to make your mistakes. That's part of it, right? That's part of the path is making the mistakes because if you don't make the mistakes, then you don't know what the right turns were. And so you got to choose your own path because if you're trying to live the life that your parents want for you, it may not be the life that ultimately makes you happy. And at some point along the way, you start to realize that it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks, even your family, right? Who you love um, and who, whom love you, but they don't live your life. And at the end of the day, right, you will be the only one that's living your life. And so you better have chosen a path that you think you've got a pretty good chance of enjoying. And for your path in the military, it's not as if someone sets out to go, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL, right? I mean, is there a point where you're like, I'm going to join the military and then you just begin to excel because you have a knack for it, if you will. You just begin to really become adapted to that lifestyle and then you elevate to that elite level. I mean, how does that happen for you? I think it happens a lot of different ways for different people. For me, it, it really, as goofy as it sounds, it really was a very deliberate decision. You know, I was, I got involved in some military stuff on campus at USC my junior year with the ROTC program, but I wasn't ROTC. I was not on a scholarship or, a, you know, ROTC scholarship. I, I certainly didn't go to the academy, which is where most of the naval officers in the SEAL teams come from. I just kind of got this wild hair that I wanted to serve. I wanted, again, to prove something to who I don't know, I guess me. But I defined my search I thought I wanted to go into special operations, and I literally defined my search by which unit had the highest attrition during selection, which is not a smart way to approach anything, right? Honestly, in retrospect, it's kind of silly, but it was what turned me on. It was like, well, where do I have the least chance of success? And that's where I'm going to go, right? It's it's probably a pathology that I need some therapy to help undo, but but that's, that was it. And the SEAL teams had about an 85% washout rate. And when I found that, I was like, man, there it is. That's it. And washout rate, meaning like people who don't get there fully? Yeah, there's the, the initial selection course is called BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition Slash SEAL Training. It's six months of formal training and about a month of pre-training. And during that, and it's already pretty hard to get there, right? Because there's a lot of folks that kind of have this idea, oh, I want to be a SEAL. And so there's a pretty significant winnowing process to get down to the ones to the 130 or so folks that get to class up at the beginning of each of those classes as they go through. And then of those who make it that far, about 85% either quit or for enough, for one reason or another, get rolled, what's called rolled back, where they get, you know, they get dropped from the class and they have to pick up with the next class coming through. A lot of times rollbacks are for injury. Right. Somebody gets injured. But, you know, the folks who quit, they just go back to the fleet and uh, get whatever assignment gets handed to them. So I think why that's such an important lesson, though, is you kind of become a businessman accidentally through your experience in the military. I was reading how, well, first, you know, the idea of going out when you're deployed 
you guys had to be like the best physical shape you needed to be in to complete your missions and to execute your missions just in general. But to complete them, of course, you had to be in top physical condition. And when you're out there being deployed, you have very limited abilities with any equipment. There's no way you have equipment that you can bring with you. And the story goes that you happen to accidentally have packed your jujitsu belt. And while you were out deployed, you began to use that. Was it sort of like a resistance sort of belt training? Like what exactly did you do with your jujitsu belt that sparked this $100 million industry right now? It was a very unlikely and inauspicious beginning. Yeah, I, honest to God, I was scooping up a flight suit, which is what we wore when we were planning, right? You know, we just, that was kind of a uniform for if you deployed it, deployed it somewhere and you, you had to spend some time planning a mission, et cetera, you'd, you'd always wear a flight suit. So I scooped mine up as I was packing my bags in a, in a frenzy, getting ready to go out the door. And I had been training, you know, I was in, I was very much into jujitsu at the time. It was early stages of, you know, the UFC and all of the mixed martial arts movement was, was really in its, in its earliest stages back in kind of the mid to late nineties. And I accidentally grabbed my jujitsu belt and stuffed it in the bag. And I ended up overseas sitting around waiting, which is something that the military has a particular affinity for doing. And to your point, we had to stay in shape. And I just came up with this idea. I don't, I don't even remember why it hit me, but it was, a, you know, I'd been a wrestler in high school. So climbing ropes, there's a lot of rope climbing and body weight in the SEAL teams. And so I had probably that proclivity toward body weight training. And then I, what I really was trying to train for was to get up the side of a freighter on a caving ladder with a bunch of weight on my back. And today there's a term for this functional training. It means training movements, you know, in the training room that reinforce or mimic the movements that you need to perform in sport or in life. And I just kind of had this idea that, well, there's nothing to do pull-ups on in, in this warehouse. What if I were to throw this belt over the top of a door with a knot in it, lean back, hanging on to originally just the belt, right? And then pull myself up as if to touch the top of the door and then and then fall back again, right? With gravity pulling my body back toward Earth and me lifting that weight against gravity. And that was honestly the beginning of it. And it just, you know, I have this uh, weird, I don't know what to call it. Uh, I guess it's a gift. I don't have many talents, but this seems to be one of them, which is to kind of MacGyver stuff together. And I just started MacGyvering, right? And ended up with this weird harness that worked really, really well for a whole range of strength training. You know, and I thought it was kind of clever because the guys originally mocked me because that's what happens in a commando unit, right? You're constantly heckling each other. And, but then very quickly, we're like, all right, wait a minute, let me get on that thing. Let me try it. And it just, it started as a hobby and it kind of uh, came into full bloom when I was at Stanford at business school after I had, you know, I was promoting out of the field. I had a baby on the way and I just decided, all right, well, you know, ironically, the world was pretty peaceful right before 9-11. And so I just made the decision, all right, well, I guess if I'm ever going to get out and transition to my next chapter in life, this is the moment. And so I got, uh, I got accepted to Stanford and while I was there thinking about business, I was training on my strap. And it was pretty funny because I was training out in the athlete training center and the coaches started asking me about it. And every one of them that asked me about it, and I would go into my story and then they'd end up saying, well, hey, could you make some for me for my team? 
and their teams were all different, male, female, big, small, fast, strong, slow, you know. And I started thinking, well, I am at business school thinking about business. Maybe I ought to take a look at this. And, and that was kind of the beginning of what would become right this business called TRX. And when you talk about your road as an entrepreneur, you do talk about the importance of proof of concept when you are advising young business owners, you know, how to then go out in the world and maybe execute their idea and bring it to, I guess, to public consumption, if you will. But the idea of proof of concept means you have to put in a lot of work, right? Like nothing's, there's no shortcut. And that's what another big lesson to be learned here for young people getting out of college is I think they're all watching Shark Tank and they think they're just going to go and create some new, a new version of like the fork or something without really thinking, putting in the work. And so talk a bit about the proof of concept, how you had to actually then go sell this idea. Yeah, it's so interesting when you think about launching a new venture because you can do a lot. There is a question, though, one ought to ask oneself, which is, should I do this? Right. And the answer to that can really only come from, uh, I think, number one, you, you perceived a problem for which you have a real solution. And I think a lot of businesses make the mistake of becoming solutions in search of a problem. Right. And, and life is hard if you are a solution in search of a problem. Life gets a lot easier if you're a solution to a real and commonly perceived problem. So that's one of the places that I would always recommend entrepreneurs start is what is the problem that I'm solving? And if you have a hard time articulating that, then go back to the drawing board because the ready, fire, aim approach with entrepreneurship is fraught with peril. The ready, aim, fire approach is much more likely to get you where you want to be. And so I think that that leads into your point about proof of concept. You already have something, right? I had this goofy strap that worked to solve a problem. I started with a problem. I didn't start with the idea that I was sitting there in that warehouse going, geez, I want to one day become a business guy. I was thinking about a counter-terror operation, you know? And so I had this problem that I was trying to solve, which is how the heck do I stay in shape when I got no gear? And this became a solution to that problem. And then I got into the business of creating a proof of concept, figuring out what that even is. And it differs depending on the type of business. But yeah, that's sort of the approach that I always recommend to young entrepreneurs that they, no matter where they are in their process, that they at least step back and go, okay, let's, let's start with the problem and work forward through a solution and then prove the concept that it is in fact a solution. And, you know, and then we're kind of cooking with gas. And that's also tied to something you've said when you advise new business owners, you say to grow the business, find a hack in that area or in that, I guess, field that you're trying to create your business. And that's something I read that you told Forbes magazine. And that's also the, the same thing as almost like, you know, finding something maybe to improve upon it, but not to necessarily try to reinvent the wheel because there's so many things in our lives every day I think we all think of, but they're very fleeting. They're passing. Oh, if this was only that, this would be so much easier. And if you were to stop for a second and go, well, wait, I just think I just thought of the next thing and bring it to fruition, right? We might have the next big product, but we don't do that. I think we sort of let a lot of good ideas go very often. Yeah, I, I think I, I would want to double click on the term hack because people use 
hack as a shortcut. I'm not sure that's what I mean by hack. If, if I said that, in fact, to Forbes, what I, what I meant was to find a unique perspective that's different and differentiated on something. Because there, improving on the state of the art is always, I think, a productive effort, right? Because you've got something that, that is already there. And if you have a genuine improvement to it, then you're likely to build on the success and familiarity with whatever that good or service is and be able to get a little bit of a shortcut in that respect, right? You're starting with something that's known. You're making it definitively better. Therefore, people who already consume it are going to be interested to look at your innovation upon it, right? Whereas starting from scratch, which is what I did with the suspension trainer, there are benefits and there are drawbacks. The benefit, obviously, is you don't have any competitors. The drawback is that you're the fool that has to be out there with the machete cutting the path through the jungle and getting ripped and torn as you go with some other dude waiting to run up behind you and shadow you, you know, as you go along and benefit from your efforts. I mean, that's the innovator's dilemma, right? Is there's always a fast follower who's ready to run up your back with that improvement on your concept that can make you irrelevant. So, you know, there's pros and cons to each approach, whether you want to do something that's fundamentally new or whether you want to do something that's an improvement on an existing good or service. They're different and they both have their merits and their challenges. So I think many of the things you say as an entrepreneur or leader, they also can apply to real life lessons in many ways, right? Things that can get us through our everyday. And one that stuck out to me that you mentioned in business that I thought, oh my gosh, that's a great concept for life. Managing risks is different than blind risk, right? Taking blind risk. That was a big one for me when I read that because to me, it just sounds like, you know, be fearless, but be sensible. So tell me what you mean by that. Well, first of all, I, I have to commend you and thank you for doing a little bit of research because you, you're remembering things that I can't even remember saying. <laughs> I, I appreciate you, Corey, for having done your homework here. Of because course, of course. That's, gonna, that's what makes you a great interviewer, right? As you did your homework, you, you, uh, you got some interesting things to ask. And yeah, that's one that honestly, it's sort of been a mantra of mine through life. I am really extremely risk averse. When it comes to blind risk, and by that, I mean things that you really don't have much ability to control, you know, risk that you can't influence at a significant level by your actions. So, for instance, when I go to Vegas, I only go to Vegas to lay in the sun by the pool, go see some shows and go out, you know, to dinner. You will never see me at any of the tables. (laughs) Well, that sounds strange for a dude who's lived his life in a variety of death-defying ventures, right? Metaphorically in entrepreneurship, you're always on the brink of death, and then literally in the SEAL teams. But that's because those risks in military affairs and in entrepreneurial affairs are significantly within your control to manage. And for that kind of risk, I have an enormous appetite. So it's, it's a really interesting and kind of bizarre contrast because... I do not like anything that is just a leap of faith. I guess I don't have enough faith. I I just want things that I want to be involved in things that I have some amount of background and therefore some learnings and some skills that can be applied in that environment and affect the outcome, right? That's where I want to 
be. And that's where I, when I invest as an angel, I invest in, in businesses where, you know, I think I can add value. And certainly in things that I take on as my next project, it's always in areas that I think I have some amount of skill and perspective that can, that can affect the outcome. The idea of never stop learning with the mentality of a warrior is something that I believe or within that context, you said. Now, in your case, you could take that very literally because you are like Mr. Physical climbing up stuff with a, with a belt and stuff. So, I mean, you, you have like, you actually are a warrior, but in the metaphoric sense, that applies to, I think, everyday life. That applies to the young person who we're talking about now, who's about to get out of college and he's wondering about what's next. And this idea that college is your end game before you get a job. But what I take from what you're saying is, no, every day you wake up should be another opportunity to continue to grow, continue to blossom and bloom. I believe that's sort of what I get from that. But tell me what you mean by never stop learning with the mentality of a warrior. Yeah. Well, I think the idea of never stopping learning is critical because it means that you're paying attention in life, right? And I I have made, gosh, I mean, innumerable mistakes on every level. I try not to make the same ones multiple times, although I'm even guilty of that. but all of those mistakes, they're the things that you really remember, right? If you're paying attention because they sting and they, they require personal accountability. And, you know, that's never fun. It's always fun when the outcome's positive, but it's never fun when the outcome's negative. And yet you have to do it. So when I talk about sort of always being willing to learn, that's really what I mean. You should be taking new challenges to stretch yourself all the time so that I really believe that by the time that I'm, you know, even more of a geezer than I am now, by the time I'm, you know, in my late 60s or something, I want to be at the maximum utility that I've ever been at in my entire career. Well, I can't be that physically. That's a losing battle. I can never be as, as good as I was in my late 20s when I sort of, you know, it, most guys hit their peak between late 20s and mid 30s. So how can I still be the best version of me ever? I can have paid attention the whole time and learned and kept pushing myself, kept putting myself in positions where I wasn't comfortable, where I maybe didn't have the skill set that I wished I had. Because if you do that, then the brain keeps evolving and keeps, it's a muscle, right? It keeps getting trained and you become Instead of being this old kind of washed up entrepreneur that time passed by, you're like Yoda because you've been paying attention, man. And, and at that point, you know, all those years of experience come together to make you as, if not omnipotent, as smart as you're ever going to be. So that's what I mean by continuing to learn. And then the warrior mentality is an interesting thing. I've thought a lot about how to apply that in business and in life. And I think it really comes down to kind of two things. If I had to distill everything that I learned as a SEAL into kind of two commands, it would be be prepared so you can be in charge. And I was just having this conversation recently with one of my um, teammates at Outfit, which is my new startup. And I was explaining to her that, look, you know, you have to be prepared in order to be in charge. And I'm sure this would be familiar, Corey, to you and everybody else, that the times in life when you are generally the most nervous are when you realize 
that you are insufficiently prepared. Amen. When you're prepared, right, you're prepared for this, for this interview, I can tell, and it shines through because you're in charge of this interview, right? And that is critical. And I think that for the young folks that are listening right now, I mean, honest to goodness, if I could give one piece of advice, it would be that. Be prepared. Do that hard work to really know your stuff so that when you step onto the podium, wherever that is, could be in front of your team, could be in front of your boss, could be on an actual stage, could be with a client, you know, could be in front of an investor. When you step on that podium, you're confident, which means you can be in charge. You can command that audience and have them going, wow, this cat is good, right? I want this cat on my team. I want to invest in this cat. I want to buy this person's products, you know, whatever it is. But it really comes down to that. It's, it's hard to do. It's, it's one of those concepts that, you know, as they say, is simple, but not easy. But be prepared to be in charge to me is, uh, is a life's truism if you want to be a successful business um, leader. I will say thank you for that compliment as well, sir, because, you know, normally we have our guests booked for the show maybe a few weeks in advance. And when we had the opportunity to speak to you, I said, oh, well, great. I only have like one day this week. And if he could give me that day, I would love to book him as a guest. And so Randy and I can talk about his life and what he's accomplished. And that gave me, when you did confirm, that gave me like less than 24 hours <laughs> to where I, normally I have two weeks. And so you are so accurate when you say, for me, the worst thing would have been I'm prepared to sit here and not have given you the respect of putting in the work so we can have a real substantial conversation. Our point is to help people and to give them information and knowledge. And so I agree with you. Part of why I was prepared was because I wanted it to be a quality product that we're going to put forward with this conversation. Isn't that funny that, that sometimes when the, when the time frame is compressed, you also do good work because you got to dive in, dig in, and it's all sort of injected freshly in your brain. Oh, yes. Versus yes. if you had a couple weeks, you know, you do a little bit here, a little there. By the time you get to the interview, you've forgotten maybe about some of the stuff that you... So, you know, there's always a way to make uh, lemonade out of lemons if you're looking. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.